It was the night before our wedding, and I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. The idea of becoming someone new was, was way, way too exciting for sleep. In a few hours, I knew in a few hours, I was going to be changed forever. I, I was going to become this partnership joined in the Lord, two people forever one in Christ. It was an incredibly powerful feeling. I spent hours that night praying with God about it, uh, talking on the phone with Jana, sharing the moment with my parents and my best man, us all praying together. All of us were struck with this beautiful truth that God was about to superintend something that would positively change us all for the rest of our lives. Most of us here have experienced similar moments, right? Weddings, births, commissions, retirements. Each of these life changes, think about them. Think about those big life changes. Every one of them has a moment of drawn in breath, right? The, the, the hushed moment of reflection before the, the busy, wonderful moment of transition. Our moments, just before everything changes, they are amazingly parallel to the situation in Israel on the verge of the Passover. Uh, open your Bible to Exodus chapter 11. Let's experience it together. Moses and Aaron, all of Israel, are on the cusp of a massive change event. Let's read Moses' pithy summary of the situation. Uh, start in verse 9 of Exodus 11. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his land. Chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Stop there. To understand this summary, we first need to review the context, which is, which is built on some old problems. By the way, that's the header in your notes. Um, you got a bulletin when you came in. Open it up. There's notes inside there on the left side. You'll see old problems. You see, Israel originally settled in Egypt under the Hebrew patriarch Joseph, who, who had risen to the number two position in the great kingdom. But Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 tells us hundreds of years later, a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. Now, the most likely time for Joseph's original arrival in Egypt is the 12th dynasty of the Middle Kingdom. This was a golden age. It was a, a restoration period of Egyptian glory. As my old professor John Hanna encapsulates, he says, In this affluent era, Joseph emerged as prime minister of Egypt, and Jacob and his sons came and joined him. They sojourned in Egypt. That's in Genesis 46. Now, that glorious 12th dynasty was followed not long after by what historians call the Second Intermediate Period, this period right here. It was a roughly 250-year period when Egypt was ruled by a Semitic people known as the Hyksos. The, the Hyksos had superior military technology. It seems to have afforded them ascendancy. Their leaders, get this, their leaders became known as pharaohs of all Egypt, even though they were not native Egyptians. The Hyksos were, were counted as the sovereigns of the 13th to 17th dynasties, and they seem to have been very friendly with their distant relatives, the Israelites. In fact, you know what they did for the Israelites? The Pharaoh, one of the Hyksos pharaohs, gave the Israelites a permanent land grant, a very large, nice piece of property known as the land of Goshen. It was to be the Israelites forever. But Ahmos I of Thebes overthrew the Hyksos rule. He established this new kingdom of Egypt. It seems most likely that the, the events in your book of Exodus, those events transpired very likely during the 18th dynasty of this new kingdom of Egypt. These new kingdom rulers, they are the pharaohs who knew not Joseph. Ahmos I violated the Goshen Land Treaty. In fact, he wouldn't even put that. You know what he did? He enslaved all the Israelites. In fact, he began a serious and horrible series of racial pogroms 
that killed many, many, many Hebrew baby boys. Now, over 100 years later, Moses is standing before another of these anti-Semitic New Kingdom pharaohs. It's possibly Amenhotep II, I think that's likely. It could have been the III, but whoever the king is, this, this pharaoh has been completely committed to keeping his Israelite slaves. He's using lies and manipulation to hang on. He's hung on through a series of nine devastating plagues. So, in summary, the situation when we get to Exodus chapter 12 involves illegal slavery, violation of treaties, ugly anti-Semitism, and an incredibly stubborn Egyptian king. But these are new days. Moses and Israel are on the cusp of a completely new era. Look, look what Yahweh says. This is going to be the start of the new year in Hebrew calendar reckoning, right? Everything will be measured from this month of the Passover. Nothing's going to be the same after this. Even the human measurement of time will revolve around this event of Israel being rescued from slavery. Even the Hebrew word that God and Moses use emphasizes this. Look, Kadesh, what, what we rightly translate month, is technically the word for a new moon. And, and the root term emphasis, emphasizes the new part of that. It, it means month when it's used like this, but the newness is accentuated. Look, you know what it's like? It's as if Moses and Yahweh are talking the way Jana and I talked the night before our wedding. At one point, we were each in the different places we were staying. We were outside, and we were talking to each other on the phone, and we were looking up, and we were looking at a new moon. By the way, May 27th of that year, it was a very small sliver of a crescent brand new moon, the exact same moon that is overhead right here at the start of the Passover. It, it's like God has Moses, when they're talking, walk outside and look up at this new moon. From this point on, the Hebrew religious calendar will begin on this date. Every new year will start in the first spring moon, sometime during the months that we call March and April. You know, if Moses laid music over everything, you know how we lay, we lay music over everything, right? If Moses did that, surely the background here would have had Michael Buble singing Feeling Good, right? Um, if, if in case you don't know it, I want you to listen and look to some of the lyrics of this wonderful tune. They summarize perfectly what this new day means. Listen. Freedom, freedom. Emphasize the new. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new life. It's a new life for me. How you feeling, Moses? And I'm feeling good. Oh. Awesome. Feeling good. That's Moses, right? Even the stars and the moon know this is a new life to which Israel's being led. And Mo Moses is feeling good. Right? And my friends, this stretches far beyond Moses. This event has eternal impact. Look, look at the quote uh, from a decidedly secular source, uh, Barnes and Bacon's Historical Atlas of Judaism. All acts of deliverance in Jewish and Christian history can be seen as consequences of the Exodus and God's deliverance. And, and they've been celebrated as extensions of the Passover, close quote. This is deliverance worthy of celebrating. So God institutes the Passover feast. Read on. Read on in chapter 12. Pick it up in verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, 
They must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's households, one animal per household. If the household's too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each person will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You're to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. They're to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with, the unleav along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. Do not let any of it remain until morning. Here's how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Uh, <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry, I left out a part. You must burn up any of it that does remain before morning. Here's how you eat it. Dress for travel, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand. You're to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am Yahweh. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you're staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is to be a memorial for you, and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You're to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. You must eat unleavened bread for seven days. On, on the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. Whoever eats what is leavened from the first day to the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. You're to hold a sacred assembly on the first day, another sacred assembly on the seventh day. No work may be done on those days except for preparing what people need to eat. You may only do that. You're to observe the festival of unleavened bread because on this very day, I brought your divisions out of the land of Egypt. You must observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent statute. You're to eat unleavened bread in the first month from the evening of the 14th day of the month until the evening of the 21st day. Yeast may not be found in your houses for seven days. If anyone eats something leavened, that person, whether a foreign resident or a native of the land, must be cut off from the community of Israel. Do not eat anything unleavened. Eat unleavened bread in all your homes. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go. Select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that's in the basin, and brush the lintel and the two doorposts with some of the blood in the basin. None of you may go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he'll pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land, the Lord will give you, as he promised, you're to observe this ritual. When your children ask you, what does this ritual mean to you? You're to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. So the people bowed down and worshipped. Then the Israelites went and did this. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. Stop there. Let's make sure we understand the term Passover. The term Passover here has a much more substantial meaning than merely stepping over or, or avoiding something. The, the, the verb is Pasach and the, and the noun is Pesach. These are, these are very different from the common Hebrew verb Bahar, which is used for, for passing over something. Uh, Seal and Moshe Rosen explain why this difference matters so much. Look, from their wonderful book, Christ and the Passover, it's not the common Hebrew verb Abahar or Gabahar, which is frequently used for stepping over. The, the word used here is Pasach, from which comes the noun Pesach, which is translated Passover. These words have no connection with any other Hebrew word, but they do resemble the Egyptian word Pesh, which means to spread wings over in order to protect, close quote. 
Think about that. Isn't that cool? God makes up a new word based on the land of, language of Egypt, a word that doesn't merely mean to step over. It means to protect. It means to cover. The, the 20th century preacher, Arthur Pink, explains more. Look at his quote. I put atop the right side of your notes. Look at the right side of your notes. Pink says this. Thus, the Lord's Passover means sheltering and protection as is found under the outstretched wings of the Almighty. This term, Pesach, is applied, one, to the ceremony, and two, to the lamb, the slain lamb. The sheltering behind its blood and the eating of its flesh constituted the Pesach, the protection of God's chosen people beneath the sheltering wings of the Almighty. It was not merely that the Lord passed by the houses of the Israelites, but that he stood on guard, protecting each blood-sprinkled door, close quote. That's why, that's why verse 23 in what you read used such protective language, right? It's what Passover means. It means protection. Now, let's talk a bit more about the lamb. From this and other passages, we know that, that each animal chosen was required a four-day waiting period to ensure that animal was in perfect health. That becomes a very significant type of Jesus. Look, look, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty ways of life inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. Human beings who inherit inherent sinfulness are rescued, not because of what the people do, but because of Jesus' sacrifice. He protects us from the appropriate wrath of God against sin. And his protection is more precious than can be imagined. It, it's the very body and blood of the Son of God. Those who trust him are rescued indeed. Notice how the Passover lamb in Exodus is marked out for death. You see that? You pick one, it's marked for death. Isaiah 53 says that the promised Messiah, he's going to fulfill this picture of the Paschal Lamb. Isaiah 53, 7. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. With that in mind, we better understand the glaring, evident sign when John the Baptizer, remember when John the Baptizer looks at Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know what he's saying? He's marked for death, and he's not going to complain about it. In his fantastic new book, I really enjoyed this book, Yeshua, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum points out the meaning behind John's cry, especially to Jewish ears. Here's what, here's what they heard John saying. By calling him Lamb of God, Yohanan, uh, John the baptizer, identified Yeshua with two Old Testament concepts. First, he identified him with the Paschal Lamb of Exodus 12, and second, with the Messianic Lamb of Isaiah 53, close quote. And please don't miss the point of Isaiah 53. This Messiah, who is unbelievably powerful, he meekly lays down to be the sacrifice. It's, a, it's like a powerful ram holding still to be sheared. And by the way, they do that. When, when I was getting my doctorate in England, my family and I would travel quite a bit, and, and we saw shearings in lots of different parts of the United Kingdom, and it always fascinated us how the, how the rams, these huge, tough rams, would become so docile for the shearing time. Now, since we're talking about the lamb or goat sacrifice, skip down to verse 46. I know we haven't read this yet. We will in a moment. But, but there's one last instruction here that, that applies here. His bones are to remain unbroken. Look, verse 46. It is to be eaten in one house. You may not take any of the meat outside the house, and you may not, whatever body, read it with me. You may not break any of the bones. Later, the Messianic Psalm 34 applies this unbroken bone idea to the Messiah. Look, look. Psalm 34, verse 20. Here, read this with me, too. Would you? Psalm 34, verse 20, all together. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Thank you. You got it? 
No bones broken on the Paschal Lamb, which is a picture of the Messiah, who likewise is going to die for people without a broken bone. That's what the Old Testament says. That explains why John was so observant and so specific about the bones when he was watching Jesus' crucifixion. Look, John chapter 19. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs. By the way, in, in a crucifixion, in a rare moment of some kind of compassion, actually just because they wanted to get it over with, they would break the, the legs of the person being crucified so they could no longer push up and breathe anymore. Right? They finally broke their legs after a number of hours of horrific suffering. But look what happened. When they, when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. At once, blood and water, plural fluid, came out. That proves that he's, he's dead. He, John, who saw this, has testified so you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth. For these things happened so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. Each aspect of the Passover feast points to Jesus points exactly to Jesus, including everything about the lamb. And that's true also of the bitter herbs. Um, you know, in much of world thought, including the Hebrews, bitter food is acquainted with mourning. Um, if you have ever faced loss, if, if you've ever lost a loved one, if, if you've ever even lost some significant thing, or let's expand it, if you've ever even lost a big game that really hurt, if you've ever faced loss in your life, raise your hand. Okay, all right, well, good. most of us then can relate to this. Isn't it interesting how often food loses its flavor and we lose our appetite when we're in mourning? You ever notice that? Not, not always, but often in our grief, nothing, nothing tastes right. It's like, it's like when you have a virus. No, nothing tastes right. That's getting somewhat close to the idea behind the inclusion of charosis, the, the bitter herbs in the Passover festival meal. There's an appropriate sense of mourning for the cost that was paid by another for our rescue. And that's why Zechariah 12.10 points out the mourning that is going to be associated with this great festival. There's a great festival that is going to be a part of the Messiah's coming rule, but there's mourning in it. Look, Zechariah 12, verse 10. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look on him whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Even as we celebrate him in his coming kingdom, the, the unresurrected people who are living in Jerusalem on that day, they're going to mourn over him because of what he had to pay to save his people. That's the bitter herbs. There seems to be a second aspect to the bitter herbs. They help succeeding generations remember what we were. The Hebrews were trapped in slavery. It was bitter. They couldn't wait to escape it. Look, that's why they ate with their shoes on, ready to go. It's why the flesh was roasted in the fire. That was the quickest means to prepare food then because you didn't have to wait for water to boil over their open fire. Now, we who are believers in Messiah Jesus, the Paschal Lamb, we're meant to rejoice in our forever freedom. Amen? Amen. And likewise, we're not supposed to forget the bitter price that was paid for our sin. Nor are we to forget the bitter herbs of what our life was like before we were rescued by faith in Jesus. Re read with me. Ephesians chapter 2, um, verses 1, 4, and 5. You read the underlined text. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. You're saved by grace. Amen. That's the lesson of the bitter herbs. Can I get a hallelujah?
All right, now, what can we learn from the unleavened bread? The Israelites are not to take time to let the dough rise, okay? Now, partly this is because they're in a hurry. Partly it's to serve as a symbol. Leaven here is used as an image of Egyptian idolatry. The Hebrews are supposed to get all the false Egyptian religion out of their lives. Now, please don't confuse that image with a statement that yeast is somehow always bad in itself. In fact, in fact, I don't know if you know this, in the Bible, leaven is not always used as representative of sin. But in this passage, purging leaven was indicative of breaking the whole enslavement idolatry cycle. One time I was at a gathering of a bunch of Jewish Christian leaders, Messianic leaders. I'm not sure why I was invited, but it was great fun. <laughs> Had a great time. Uh, and all these people brought all this food. It was a great gathering. And somebody brought some cookies. They made some cookies that were incredibly flat. I've never seen cookies that were quite this flat. Probably a very, very humid day, and they just didn't rise at all. I was kind of looking at those cookies when Arnold Fruchtenbaum walked up, the theologian that we, that we quoted from earlier. And, and Dr. Fruchtenbaum walked up, and he looked at the cookies, and he looked at me, and he said in his high-pitched voice, Oh, look, someone made Passover cookies. <laughs> He's a funny guy. <laughs> Jesus seems to use this Passover image of flatbread as a metaphor for, for sin. Leaven is a metaphor for sin. Mark chapter 8, verse 15. He cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And, and, and then... The Apostle Paul picks up on this idea. He develops it, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and envy, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. B because we have received Jesus and been received by him, we are justified. That, that means that, that we're made right before God and that we're meant to live lives of sanctification, of growing holiness, not lives of sin. The festival of unleavened bread, Christian, thus becomes a picture of our whole life where we follow Jesus in sincerity and truth. So, dear friend, what leaven needs cleaned out of your dough? Hmm? What sin pattern are you lying to yourself about? Let, let, me, let me put it this way. If I were to talk to the other people who know you well, what would they say? What would they say needs to be removed from your life so that you can really celebrate Jesus as he made you to be? Oh, speaking of celebration, unleavened bread, notice, is part of a seven-day festival leading from the Passover. The festival involves no work except the making of food. That's, that's an image of life. We're to rest in the Lord. Awesome. Now, look at one last image in this passage, the blood-covered door, right? Verses 22 and 23 describe the application of blood to the door. The Hebrews apply the blood, enter inside. They are safe, protected until the new day begins. The basin, by the way, is not a bowl. It sounds like that in English, but, but actually it was a trough that you put in front of ancient doorways, uh, kind of a deep trough that you put in there so that water, uh, when it rained really hard, wouldn't flow across the threshold and and into the house. Now, in most ancient cultures, you may know this, the kitchen fire was actually, almost always, the kitchen fire was out back. Small three or sometimes four room house, and the kitchen fire's out back, and that's, that's where you slaughtered animals and you cooked out there. But, but it seems like here that the, that the Passover lambs are all killed out in front in the insula, in the, in the courtyards of all the homes there in Egypt, and the blood fills the basin in front. Then the hyssop brush was used to apply the blood to the crossbar atop the doorway and then to the two side posts. Some people see this as symbolic of Jesus on the cross. 
The, the blood atop is his crown of thorns. The, the blood on the sides are his pierced hands, the blood below from the nails in his feet. Others are especially struck by the fact that this is a doorway. And remember, Messiah Jesus called himself the door, right? The Rosens were touched by this. Look what they wrote in their book. We see further symbolism in the words of Jesus when he said, I am the door. This is a quote from John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door, and, sh- and, and, and if it, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and he shall go in and out and find pasture. The Israelites went in through the blood-sealed door on that first Passover night and found safety, protected and redeemed by the sacrificial blood. They went out the next morning and began their journey toward the good pasture, the land of promise. We, who are redeemed by the true Passover lamb, find safety in him from God's judgment. And because of him, we look forward to a future eternal heaven in the very presence of the Almighty in the, and here they quote Hebrews chapter 11, city whose builder and maker is God. John chapter 10 verse 9 that they quoted there intrigues me. It's actually a shepherding passage. It employs a shepherding image. But Jesus may have had Passover in mind as well because those who are in him are protected in a new and permanent covenant, and they are looking ahead to a perfect forever when they go out and and flourish with him forever. To that, all God's people said what? Amen. Amen. Okay, now let's read the Passover event, the actual moment when everything goes down. Go to verse uh, 29. Now, at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get up, leave, leave my people, both you and the Israelites. Go, worship Yahweh as you've asked. Take even the flocks and your herds as you've asked, and also bless me. Now, the Egyptians pressured the people, the Israelites, in order to send them quickly out of the country. They said, we're all going to die. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their clothes on their shoulders. The Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor in the Egyptians' sight that they gave them what they requested. In this way, they plundered the Egyptians. Stop there. We're going to cover this section pretty quickly because it relates to things we've already learned in Exodus. Here's a couple things we must note. First, this Pharaoh, this supposedly all-powerful person, this deity in Egyptian thought, look at him. He is reduced to, to being a supplicant asking Moses for a blessing. Everyone who believes in idols and rejects Yahweh's grace will end up humiliated like this. It's a biblical fact, and I do mean humiliated. Don't be deceived by the movies, folks. This last conversation between the king and Moses, it, it is certain that this did not happen face-to-face the way it's depicted in the films. You see, Pharaoh is, without a doubt, face down on the floor. In that time and space, that was the accepted way of asking for a blessing. You were prostrate on the floor, you didn't look up at someone, and that's how you asked for a blessing. Thus, we now understand the angry reply of Moses back when Pharaoh threatened him in their conflict just before this, back in chapter 10. Look, Pharaoh said to him, leave me. Make sure you never see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you will die. As you have said, Moses replied, I will never see your face again. <laughs> This historical note is also important. Look at the list of kings here. Amenhotep II is very likely the king with whom Moses tangled. God purposely did not have Moses include the Pharaoh's name. This is a real diss, folks. It's done in the Bible on purpose as an indication of deserved disrespect. But there's something important you should know about Amenhotep II. He was not the firstborn son of his father, Tutmos III. 
You see, the Egyptian records tell us that the wife and oldest son of Thutmose III died suddenly. He was forced to remarry late in life. He ruled as a co-regent for a number of years with his new son, Amenhotep II, and then Amenhotep II took over. And Amenhotep II wasn't succeeded by his firstborn son either. Apparently, his firstborn son died. The Egyptian records give no mention as to how that son died, but just that he did. His death opened the door for Thutmose IV, the second son who eventually became Pharaoh. Now, our passage closes with a beautiful summary. We're going to call this the, the Passover Memorial, uh, verse 37. The Israelites traveled from Ramesses to Succoth. By the way, those weren't the names of the towns at the time they were there. You know, we talked about this before. That, that you, you use the later names when you're writing this later so that later people understand after the towns have changed names and begun to grow. If I said Lebanon, Texas, you wouldn't understand because that's been absorbed by Frisco now. But when I first moved here, there was a little settlement called Lebanon, Texas. There was a quilt stand and a church. Um, kind of a perfect town. Anyway, um, <clears throat> Ramesses and Succoth about 600,000 soldiers on foot besides their families. An ethnically diverse crowd also went up with them, along with a huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. The people baked the dough they had brought out of Egypt into unleavened loaves, since it had no yeast. For when they had been driven out of Egypt, they could not delay and had not prepared any provisions for themselves. The time the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that same day, all the Lord's divisions went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of vigil in honor of the Lord because he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. This same night is in honor of the Lord, a night vigil for all the Israelites throughout the generations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner may eat it, but any slave man, any slave a man has purchased may eat it after you've circumcised him. A temporary resident or a hired hand may not eat the Passover. It's to be eaten in one house. You may not take any of the meat outside the house. You may not break any of its bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. If a foreigner resides with you and wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover, every male in his household must be circumcised, and then he may participate. He will become like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat it. The same law will apply both to the native and the foreigner who resides among you. Then all the Israelites did this. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. On that same day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt according to their divisions. When I was a kid... My dad loved to take us on Saturday fishing trips. They were always so exciting. We'd be, we'd be really excited. On Friday night, Dad would get home from work, and we'd spend the whole night getting all the gear together and fixing everything and putting all the packs together and getting all this stuff. And then, and then Dad would make us go to bed, and, and we would try to go to sleep. And he actually didn't get very much sleep because he stayed up most of the night. And then he woke us up very, very early because he wanted to travel. He wanted to have us drive to the lake so we could get there and get out on the water before the sun came up. That... That whole period of preparation and traveling, it was, it was just kind of a, a hushed excitement. You know how you're kind of quiet before dawn? That's, that's what we were like. That same kind of excitement is in these newly freed Israelites. Look what they're doing. They're making their all-night vigil and their early morning march out of Egypt. And notice they're no longer called slaves. Israel is now changed into God's army. That's why he calls them soldiers and divisions. This is military terminology. Slaves are set free. They are immediately rendered into the Lord's army. And frankly, they act like it. The, the Hebrews obey God completely. This is so cool. They get back to worshiping and honoring Yahweh. They get back to doing what He commands. And that's the memorial. It's a remembrance of this miraculous transformation of slaves into an army for God. Notice verse 42. This is to be a memorial for Israel. How long? How long, everybody? Forever. 
And in that sense, Passover becomes a bellwether throughout all of Israel's history. It becomes a bellwether of Israel's spiritual state. You see, throughout Israelite history, there'll be long seasons when the people are very tepid about the Passover. And there's going to be some seasons when they, are, they don't practice Passover at all. These years are, understandably, eras of great evil and loss for the Jews. And there's other times where the Passover is remembered and it's celebrated. Those, those years are blessed. Not, listen, not because the Passover is some pagan formula that you use to control God. No, they're blessed because the people gratefully engage in a relationship with God that is made possible by Yahweh's grace. We'll talk more about that next time, next Sunday, when we receive our communion as our covenant memorial. For Israel's covenant memorial, verse 48 includes a shocking proviso. Look at verse 48. Aliens can partake of the celebration. Of course, they first have to become Jews. That's why they must be circumcised. To receive the full benefits of the Passover, the alien must trust Yahweh and enter his covenant community that is open to all. This is a remarkably unique provision in all the ancient world. Folks, anyone could become a part of Israel and receive the full redemption that is signified in the Passover. No other people group had that. No one else. No other people group allowed you to come in and be just like a normal citizen with complete acceptance. This shows that the Yahweh relationship is what matters, not race. Trust in the God of grace. You trust in the God of grace that is revealed through his word to Abraham's family, and you're in. Of course, in the New Testament church, the principle of acceptance by faith continues, right? No matter our race, we are all welcome at the cross. Christians have been changed. We have been changed by trust in Jesus so that we're no longer aliens. You know what we are? We are heart-circumcised members of God's covenant community. Amen? Amen. Listen. Listen to Paul's moving description of it. Ephesians chapter 2. At that time, you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. When the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you, you Gentiles, who were far away, and peace to those who were near. So then, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household. You merely need to trust Him. Pray with me about that. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for anyone who is studying with me today that does not trust Jesus, doesn't know Him as Savior, I pray they will turn to you, to Yahweh, the covenant God, and they will trade their alien status for complete acceptance in your family. It's always been by your grace through faith. From Abraham through into Jesus who fulfills the covenants. Please draw them to you. Friend, listen. God loves you so much that you who deserve nothing, and you don't, he gave Jesus the Passover lamb, fully God. And that's important because no other sacrifice is enough. Only he is holy. So that everyone who trusts him would have his blood applied to the doorposts of their life. And they would be spared. More than that, they would get to come out and follow Jesus. Because you see, he didn't just die for you. He rose from the dead. So that everybody who believes in him could follow him to everlasting life. You trust him right now. Just confess the truth. I believe in Jesus alone for my salvation. I receive the Passover lamb, Jesus. If you just prayed to trust Christ, raise your hand.
Raise your hand, look at me. I want to rejoice with you. Good for you. Father, I pray for new Christians, and I pray for all these who are already Christians as they walked in, that we will rejoice in the perfect Father, that we will rejoice in Jesus, our Passover. And Lord, I pray that we'll live like it. Help, help me, help my brothers and sisters to live like holy, unleavened citizens of heaven in everything we do, inclu including the offering that we're about to take. Let everything we do be seasoned with grace and unleavened with sin. We're not capable of that, but you are, so we present the request to you. In Jesus' name, amen.